Tonight on this recorded segment of Extension 720, we're going to talk with a man who is supposed to know just about everything there is that's worth knowing. Indeed, the title of his new book is The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World. That man is a bright young fellow from New York uh, who works in editing in New York, and his name is A.J. Jacobs. What's the A.J. stand for? Well, my full name is Arnold Stephen Jacobs, Jr., so uh, I'm honestly, that's the one fact I don't know. Arnold what, Stephen? Yes. Uh, so, but, but it says here, A.J. I know. That's uh, I, it's the one fact I don't know, how my parents came up with A.J., but I guess A.S. were they considered a little dangerous for, uh, you know, the kindergarten. They might come up with some nicknames for me. One interesting brand of knowledge is the etymology of and the uh, hidden meanings of names themselves. That's right. What do you know about the name Arnold? Arnold, mighty as an eagle. That's yeah. what it's uh, supposed to mean. And, uh, yeah, you and I were just talking about the uh, etymology of Chicago, which uh, land of the stinking onions or the skunk. But uh, here, in, I'm just visiting for a couple of days, but I think it smells delightful. So. It does indeed, depending upon which way the wind blows. It <laughs> smells of, uh, used to smell of the stockyards. Now it uh, tends to smell of... Uh, fast food places, uh, <laughs> or a perfume wafting from some of the shops on Michigan Avenue. Right. The key to your becoming a know-it-all, of course, was your great heroic quest to read all, underline all, of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That is true. That was my mental triathlon. You know, after college, like many people, I felt my brain slowly uh, but surely turned to mush. So I wanted to do something to get it back in shape, and this was... This was sort of an Everest uh, to get it back into shape, and uh, 44 million words, 33,000 pages, and if you stack the volumes up, it's about four foot two. So uh, I say in the book, it's almost a Danny DeVito of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And you literally bought a full set, and you bought it in the old-fashioned form, that is, in in a print between hard covers rather than the CD version or the... Uh... What's the other one? Now, yeah, of course, it's online. on the Internet as such. Right. And you started reading, flipping the pages. That's true. I wanted the uh, old school. There's something nice about the paper and ink. And in addition, I did kill a couple of cockroaches in my New York apartment, so it came in useful. But, yeah, I started at A, and uh, went. the first word in the encyclopedia is A-ak, which is a type of East Asian music. And the last word, not to give away the ending, is uh, Zivich, so which is Z-Y-W-I-E-C. And... Uh, and what is a Zivich, or what's the reference there? A Zivich is a uh, town in south-central Poland, uh -huh. noted for its beer, actually, so it ends on a little celebratory note. Many years ago, there was a uh, the uh, warden of uh, one of the colleges at Oxford. In fact, Abelio was a famous uh, classic scholar, Benjamin Jowett. Hmm. and mocking him in the mask of Belial as it was performed by the students in the year 1880-something, uh, they there was this wonderful quatrain. This is Belial, I am Joet. What there is to know, I know it. If I don't, it isn't knowledge. I am master of this college. <laughs> that is wonderful. So that, uh, what, I did not read that. So the what end. there is to know, I know it, said uh, said Jawad. Can you say the same? <laughs> I, 
I guess I more of the uh, knew it all. And one point while I was reading, I knew it all, and it's slowly slipping out. But I do remember quite a bit. So I'm the know it most, maybe the know it a good amount. Well, dazzle me. What do you know apart from uh, merely trivial items, which you could just use to win games or fill in crossword puzzles? But what do you know that really is of substantial worth that you didn't know before? Oh well. I, I mean, I do know a lot of trivia, but I, you know, trivia isn't trivial. I do enjoy the... Uh, trivia is great fun. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, as for useful would you, or profound, I have them both. I have uh, useful. There are some hints in the encyclopedia that you might find, like Heloise-style hints. Uh, for instance, when you're cutting an onion, you might want to do it underwater because the encyclopedia says that uh, that way you won't cry. Uh, so just run the sink and cut the onion. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I learned how to build an igloo, which someday might come in handy. Uh, use a seal intestine for the window, just in case you know you want to know. Um, and as for more profound things, I mean, there were a few lessons I learned in the encyclopedia just from reading all of this. I mean, one thing that really struck me was the the more I read, the more interconnected all of knowledge and all of history became. And so... Uh, you know, as John Dunn said back in the D section, you know, no man is an island, and this became very clear. Just the strange, the strange interconnections. I, I would be reading about Garibaldi, who mm -hmm. is the uh, the uniter of Italy, and uh, all of a sudden Abe Lincoln would pop up because uh, Abraham Lincoln wanted Garibaldi to lead the Union troops during the Civil War. So, uh, you know, that old game, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, it was almost like that, but for all of history. Everything relates to everything else one way or another. That's right. Of course, that is really implicit in the very word encyclopedia, isn't it? That's right. So the circle of learning, everything is contained in, in this or allegedly contained in the uh, 32 volumes of yeah. the encyclopedia. And, and Kiklo Paideia in the Greek. Now I'm showing off my erudition, <laughs> uh, which means the circle of learning. Right, yeah. absolutely. So uh, that was that was uh, lovely to see. I, and another lesson I learned was to be a little more appreciative of uh, life as we know it now, uh, because of course there are many problems that we face. But uh, just reading through the sweep of human history, I, I became more optimistic because uh, I read in the life expectancy section under mm -hmm. the L's that uh, in 1700s France, the life expectancy for uh, a man was 30 years. That's the average life expectancy. So I would be long gone uh, since I'm 36. And... Well, no, but on life expectancy, I've uh, often wondered about this. Isn't life expectancy, aren't life expectancy figures of that sort uh, strongly influenced by the very high rates of infant mortality? That could be true. So if you average, uh, and if one... Uh, fifth of all the kids born die in the first year. Right. And if you put those ages of mortality in, that's going to reduce the overall average expectancy considerably. Well, you've got a point there. But the uh, the broader point is still, I think, valid that, uh, for instance, speaking of infant mortality, the mortality rate for a cesarean section until the 20th century was 75 uh, percent So for the woman. So, you know, I would have a lot of friends who wouldn't be around who had cesareans. So, I, I mean, I just think the, the broad sweep, you become a little more optimistic about our times. Which, you, you invite this sort of thing. I'm going to hit you with, uh, Please. with info questions. Which uh, Shakespearean figure 
uh, speaks of himself and reveals of himself that he was delivered by Caesarion. Ah, well, you know, uh, Julius Caesar was not delivered by Caesarion. Uh, and also the Caesar salad was not uh, invented by Caesar. It was invented in Mexico, Tijuana. Mm -hmm. That's where the Caesar salad comes from. And, of course, Caesar's uh, palace in Las Vegas, I don't think he had much to do with. And, uh, by the way, before I, I venture that, I would like to add that uh, Shakespeare and Cervantes both died on the exact same day in history, April 23, 1616. Mm -hmm. And uh, to get to your question, that's the one thing I don't know. Really? Yeah. It's, an, it's Macduff ah, in Macbeth. When Macbeth and Macduff have the final confrontation... Uh, Mac, uh, uh, Macbeth says he's got the prophecy that he will not be killed by any man who is of woman born. Ah, and then Macduff reveals, uh, I was from my mother's womb untimely whipped. Ah, very uh, good, very good. And uh, thus, what the, what the three witches predicted, that he would be slain by someone who was not from his mother's womb born, right. uh, is enacted. And, and, and Macbeth... Uh, is slaughtered a minute later by Macduff. Well, I was warned that you are, in fact, the uh, smartest man in the world, so I bow to you on that one. I will say that... Your informant uh, is uh, is a little bit off. I'm <laughs> In the most recent listings, I'm about fourth or fifth. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm trying to be right around there as well. Yeah, I like to say I may not be Albert Einstein, but I am up there with his lesser-known cousin, Alfred Einstein. Lesser-known? Why lesser-known? He was a great music critic. That's right. You are pretty good. <laughs> well, he is slightly lesser known, you have to admit, than Albert Einstein. Except in musicological circles. That's right. <laughs> where they cared about him more than they did about the other. Well, uh, then when they say, you're a real Einstein, they're referring to yeah. Alfred. Exactly. Your book is uh, recounts all that you've... Your music is about the many items that you've read in the encyclopedia, but also woven in are uh, interesting uh, angles of your own personal life and your fam family life. And one of the most endearing and one of the most annoying characters in your book is your brother-in-law, Eric. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the book is part Cliff's Notes to the Encyclopedia, the most interesting, profound, yeah. strangest parts. Eric uh, is the guy who knows everything. But yes, Eric, it's also a memoir of my life and what was going on and uh, and my childhood and all that. And what and we've got the nemesis of my book is, uh, is my brother-in-law, Eric, who truly is a know-it-all, a remarkable man. A former diplomat, or is he still a diplomat? Former diplomat, former computer programmer, former... Mm -hmm. uh, investment banker now he's studying uh, uh psychology so that he can understand us human beings really yes uh but yeah a truly remarkable man i mean i was uh trying to wow my uh, family with some tale of a uh of a 19th century serial murderers uh, burke and hare in uh, england and uh, these were guys who uh who would kill people and sell the corpses to a, a corrupt doctor mm -hmm. named knox and uh, so I thought I was pretty smart showing off. And all of a sudden he comes up with a, uh, a little known obscure uh, English uh, school children's poem about Burke and Hare. Burke's the, uh, Burke's the thief, uh, Hare's the, Hare, Burke, Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, Knox is the one who uh, bought the beef. So uh, I just was, uh, I, I was put in my place. So uh, by the end, I, I try to. Uh, I love the moment when you're out to dinner with, uh, with your sister-in-law and brother-in-law. Is that what they are? Yes, yes. exactly. Because um, 
because uh, Eric is married to, or is the brother of your your wife? No, That's Eric right. is married to the sister of your wife. No, no, you had it right the first time. Eric is uh, married to as uh, the brother of my wife. Yeah, but your wife is Colombian. No, no, no his, his wife, wife is, is Colombian. Colombian. That's right. Yeah, I go, I'm getting the incident confused because your wife is a New Yorker as you are. Right. That's right. And you both went to Brown. Uh, I went to Brown. She went to Dickinson College. There you are. But at last, to the story, uh, the waitress comes along, and what happens? Well, yes, this is an example of a typical know-it-all. Uh, the waitress comes along and asks for the order, and uh, my brother-in-law's wife, said, who is from Colombia, she says, I think I think that woman's from Colombia, and, uh, and not just from Colombia, but from my town. And Eric said, oh, no, she's not. She's... Uh, She's from uh, the Slavic countries, and he goes into a long tirade about Slavic accents and, mm -hmm. and, and all this. And then, in the end, it turns out that, yes, the waitress is from Colombia. And from so, the town of Kali. Is that's right, right, Kali. Uh, so, the, but Eric uh, was totally uh, unfazed. The, so that's one of the secrets to being a know-it-all. Just say it with mm -hmm. confidence. Say it loud, say it proud, even if you happen to be wrong. Have you ever run into the works of Stephen Potter? Stephen Potter. You know the name? I, uh, I Was he in the P section? I don't know whether he's covered in the Encyclopedia <laughs> Britannica. He might be well be. He's a British writer uh, of about uh, 30 or 40 years ago. had great popularity for a while. His first book was titled Gamesmanship. Subtitle or how to win at games without absolutely cheating interesting and what he lays out in comic form are all the different ways of kind of Playing on people and putting them down right and gaining mastery even when it, one of his next books was titled one-upsmanship Which is how you reverse the situation when you are intrinsically one down interesting. as for example a patient who has to address the doctors uh, um, uh, For an examination by the physician then the physician comes in and you're standing there naked that you're naturally one down right. How do you get one up you arrange for your secretary to call at just a particular moment and uh, when she calls uh, and asks for you, you get on the phone and say, no, no, tell them to hold the 5,000 shares of so-and-so, but to sell the 3,000 on the burn exchange, if you can, and to do it by 3 o'clock this afternoon. And you, you make yourself <laughs> one of the great wizards of finance while the doctor's standing there. Right. Even though you're naked, he now feels one down. In I've got to read that. I definitely have got to uh, read that. To and get another, <clears throat> another book of his is titled Lifesmanship, in which he extends the theory of gamesmanship to all life situations. Lifesmanship is subtitled Lifesmanship or How to Get Away with It Without Being an Absolute Plonk, whatever. <laughs> That's British slang for fool or something. Uh, and um, one of his famous ploys, he names them all for the people who invented them, is the Bulpington Smythe uh, counter-expert ploy. When any expert is really carrying on at a party or some right. social gathering, particularly the person, quote, who's been there, right. who's just returned from uh, from Colombia, say, or from uh, Nepal, and he pontificates about w um, how things are really there and what the attitudes really are, what the economic problems really are, you listen. Everyone is quite dazzled, and you listen with some interest. You nod sagely, and when he's all done, you say, yes, yes, quite. But surely not in the South. <laughs>
<laughs> I will definitely be and using that. Disarms the expert. Absolutely. Because he hasn't been to the south of Nepal. He's only been to Kathmandu. You see. <laughs> well, that is a uh, yeah. I learned a few things about being a know-it-all. Confidence is certainly one of them, yeah. and deflecting uh, the uh, deflecting the question. I find that to be a true know-it-all, you don't actually have to know it all. If you just know one key fact about every every mm -hmm. topic under the sun, so. Uh, <laughs> You know, if you happen to, if literature comes up and you don't know, uh, you know, about Balzac that they're discussing, you could always throw in that uh, Nathan Nathaniel Hawthorne was uh, was obsessed with the number 64. Wrote it on all of his stationery. That's right. Yeah. And scraps of paper. I learned that from went. you. <laughs> okay, good. I got worried. Uh, I got a large question for you. Yes, the largest sir. possible. Of we course. pause in just a moment for some commercials. But having read all or virtually all of the Encyclopedia Britannica, what have you learned? about the universe. <laughs> the universe. We'll be directly back <laughs> to uh, A.J. Jacobs, author of The Know-It-All, after these words. And we return to A.J. Jacobs, author of The Know-It-All, which is his account of the ultimate peregrination, the ultimate intellectual peregrination, reading from the beginning to the end of Encyclopedia Britannica. Before I get back to the question I planted a moment ago, how long did the whole project take? That is the reading itself. The project took over a year, about uh, 15 months. I read about six hours a day, and I read anywhere and everywhere. I read on the couch. I read on uh, the subway. I read uh, on my Stairmaster, mm -hmm. which got... I don't recommend because not only do you get a little motion sickness, but you also uh, get the volumes a little sweaty, which I uh, felt was just not right. These are esteemed mm -hmm. volumes that you should not be. And I asked you a moment ago, and I'm eager to hear your answer, what did you learn from reading e all of EB, or almost all of EB? What did you learn about the nature of the universe? <laughs> the nature of the universe. Well, I do have one astronomy fact that I want to throw out before I mm -hmm. get that, which was one of the... Uh, one of the saddest entries in the encyclopedia was a man named James Chalice, who was a uh, British astronomer, and he is famous in the history of astronomy for a failure. That's what that's what his entry is all about, how he failed to detect Neptune. His fellow astronomers at the uh, in Britain encouraged him to look for Neptune. He put it down on his uh, pretty far down on his to-do list. He had other things going on, and then uh, a month or two later, the Berlin uh, observatory uh, found Neptune and this guy went down as a complete failure. So if all else uh, in my life does not go right, at least I won't be in the Britannica for being a failure. So that made me feel a little better. As for the universe, uh, in the seas, they address the universe under cosmos. And it was a bit of a disturbing entry because they don't take a stand. Uh, they say that uh, the universe will either end in a fiery crunch or it will continue to expand and end as a cold, dark, mm -hmm. uh, lifeless place. So either way, it doesn't sound like a great ending. I mean, as far as I understand, the uh, cold, dark, lifeless place is now the uh, more accepted uh, scenario. The question does evoke the famous Robert Frost lines, doesn't it? Right, exactly. This is the way... This is the way the world ends, as Eliot, of course. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. And Those uh, are the two, right. the two possible outcomes. <laughs> uh, but were you a little dazzled? I certainly have been once I learned about it, uh, at the sheer extent of the universe. Well, sure. And the content of the universe. Like, sure. I mean, that was one thing also, the, the sheer extent of human knowledge and, and of... Uh, I mean, I knew there was an ocean of knowledge out there, but when you try to drink that ocean cup by cup, that's when it really sinks in quite how much there is. 
So. What's your way of estimating the total scope and content of the universe? <laughs> you have numbers? I don't. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. I, not in the South. That's what I but would say. But not in the South. But not in the South. I, I got it years ago from Carl Sagan, and it's just a wonderful way of estimating it, who said an easy way to think of it, it's a little bit off, but it's a good mnemonic, is that uh, there are 100 billion known galaxies, okay. or galaxies that we can see if we right. bother to look, and on average, each galaxy contains about 100 million stars. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty sizable. <laughs> That's not Whistling Dixie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got a little surprise for you. Oh, terrific. I uh, hate surprises. I was much influenced some years ago by uh, that fellow E.A. Hirsch, <clears throat> professor of English at the University of Absolutely. Virginia, who wrote the book Cultural Literacy. He's yes, gone sir. on a good deal more of that. Absolutely. And I started testing my own students at the University of Chicago okay. on their cultural literacy, which means right. information that's if you know the item, it means that you know a hell of a lot else. Right. Um, and I was started giving cultural literacy quizzes to my, to my larger lecture classes, only on the last day of the semester. <laughs> and um, here are some items from some of the quizzes I've used in the past. Okay, I'm ready. Um, what king was executed during the French Revolution? That would be. Uh, well, I was hoping you were going to ask about Zivich, the town in <laughs> South Central make, Poland. I make up to that. <laughs> I do have, a, I will say, a good French Revolution fact for you, yeah. is that the uh, storming of the Bastille I found extremely anticlimactic because there were only seven prisoners mm -hmm. left in the Bastille. It had sort of been in disuse for quite some time. So there were a couple of madmen, there was an aristocrat, and a couple of forgerers, but you know, it really wasn't all the that The Marquis exciting. de Sade was not one of the residents at the time, was he? No, no. Though he, he had been not. there yeah. for a while. Speaking of Saad, uh, I learned about, you know, we all know about Saad and mm -hmm. sadism, but uh, I feel that poor uh, Leo, Leopold von Massok gets a really short shrift because, you know, he's masochism. He never gets mentioned. He was a novelist, mm -hmm. uh, an Austrian novelist who liked to get spanked and wrote about that. And uh, the poor guy is forgotten, which I assume that he likes. So... Uh, but who was the king <laughs> executed during the French Revolution? The 16th, right? Of course. Okay, Louis, Louis the 16th. 16th. Right. Uh, name three poets of the 19th, uh, three British poets of the 19th century. Three British poets of the 19th century? All right. Um, let's see. I will say my favorite poet my, mm -hmm. is a British poet named uh, Sir John Harrington, uh -huh. who, uh, who is famous for something else, not his poetry. He is famous for inventing the toilet. Good heavens. Yes, this was not. This was a shock to me in the H section because it's not Thomas Crapper. That, that's an urban legend. This is a man who is a, a godson of Elizabeth I, interestingly enough, and he invented the flush toilet. Didn't Crapper invent... Oh, uh, Harrington invented the flush toilet way back then? That's correct. So what was Crapper's involvement? Crapper was a... Uh, he was just a plumber. But mm -hmm. it, it, that is sort of, uh, because of his name, evolved into an urban Because he put legend. his name on the product. Exactly. And he manufactured it. Right. He? All right. You're very good at sliding away from things. <laughs> Three British poets of the 19th century. The 19th century. Okay. What do we got? We've got, uh, well, I would say uh, Yeats. Does he count as a British? He would, uh, you know, I think well, he's he was, Irish. And he, he was Irish, right. And he... Lived over into a good part of the 20th century. But. Okay. <laughs> but he was born in the... Uh, he was so, born in the 19th, to be sure. All right. So I'll give him and... Uh, 
Well, I would think, uh, I know Matthew Arnold was a critic and also a novelist, but I think he, he was a poet, poet, and poet that as well. Counts, yeah. All right. And, uh, and then uh, I'll throw in John, Sir John Harrington as my third. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have said Shelley, uh, Keats, yeah, Wordsworth, yes, uh, Byron, et cetera. Uh, There's a lot of pressure. On this is an item that my students at the University of Chicago never got. It always amazed me. Uh, who composed the opera Tosca? Tosca. That was, uh, I am going to say, uh, well, it's, is it Puccini? Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Very good. I will say that uh, Puccini I, I was a fascinating entry in the encyclopedia because he had, I don't, uh, you probably know since you know most everything, but he had an extremely scandalous life where his mm -hmm. uh, wife was, uh, wife drove his housemaid to suicide and uh, there was a famous lawsuit and it was you know the oj simpson trial of its day and uh, i i always thought it strange that he he chose to create these operas instead of writing an autobiographical opera about this big scandal the other fascinating composer of um, an earlier time but uh, in the same century earlier in that century is rossini one of the uh, one of the great mysteries did you encounter this is suddenly at the age of 34 or was it 37 decided i won't write any more operas isn't that interesting and he never did he went on writing chamber music but he having done some 50 or so very popular operas he just decided he would stop right that's interesting no i don't i don't remember that i'm sure that was in there but i would say uh I did enjoy Mahler, the uh, Gustav Mahler, oh, yes. the section on him, because he was a disturbed and uh, tormented poor man. Who, yeah. uh, one of the things that he did was he uh, he adopted the his mother. He had a, he sort of had a mother complex, and his mother had a limp, and so he started limping in uh, in unconscious imitation of his mother. Another interesting thing about him, as I remember it, was his wife who was unfaithful to him, and right. after his death went on to marry various other people. Yes, exactly. She was sort of the Catherine Graham of her day. Just Alma Mama. Right, absolutely. Who else was she? She was married to Walter Gropius. Yes, that's not? the one I was going to say. The famous architect. Right, and someone yeah. else who I should yeah, know. Yeah, she, she was a, of the marrying kind. Oh, that's right. Um, literary. Okay. Who was the author of The Jew of Malta? The Jew of Malta. I am going to, oh, it's between uh, Christopher Marlowe and Ben Johnson. You're I, right on, on uh, Marlowe. But I, I do have a good Ben Johnson trivia. Love so, to hear so, it. All right. I'll throw it at you. It is uh, that I didn't, he was, he killed an, uh, a man in a duel. Mm -hmm. And he was about to be executed. But he got out through a little known legal loophole called benefit of clergy, which is uh, if you could read Latin, then you were uh, you, you could not be executed. So luckily he knew how to read Latin and uh, he saved his life. So Latin can save your life. I mean, if yeah. it, Latin teachers might want to use this to encourage the study of... Uh, that was very important to him. I, I, one sees now, I didn't know that until I read it in your book, as a matter of fact, but maybe that explains why he was so interested in the question of how well some of his colleagues uh, could do with Latin. You remember that uh, in the quarto of Shakespeare's uh, plays published shortly after Shakespeare's death, there are a number of um, early uh, uh, dedicatory poems, the best of them, and the longest of them, by Johnson. Right. Remember what he says of Shakespeare's linguistic facility. Is that, that not, that's not the upstart crow? Uh, no, he says uh, Shakespeare had little Latin and less Greek. Oh, interesting. So he's saying that uh, Shakespeare would have been uh, executed. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. He, he, clearly he felt superior to Shakespeare in that, but he goes on to 
write in very complimentary terms of Shakespeare's uh, achievement. Uh, can you stand more of these items? <laughs> what does DNA stand for? DNA, deoxynucleic uh, acid. Dia. Isn't that something like that? Close, you left out. <laughs> Ribonucleic acid. Deoxyribonucleic acid. Okay, fair, fair, Excellent. fair Excellent. enough. See, I got it. Uh, what is the Orestia? The Orestia is, uh, well, see, here's one thing I should mention, is that uh, I learned in the B section under brains yeah. that human beings lose 50,000 neurons per day. Yeah. So uh, I'm guessing those were in my... Uh, You've lost the Orestia neurons. Yesterday. I think it was... I think it... <laughs> Now I'm going to make a, a jackass of myself, but, well, I know it's Greek, uh -huh. uh, and uh, they aren't the, uh, all right, Orestia. Uh, it's a play. Well, it's a series of plays by uh, Aeschylus, dealing right. with okay. uh, with Orestes and uh, those who came before him and after him. Right. Yeah. Well, I, here's my favorite piece of uh, Greek uh, knowledge, if I mm -hmm. could hit you with it. It is uh, reading about Pythagoras, the yeah. uh, philosophy mathematician, who I thought was, you know, a perfectly rational man who uh, invented the Pythagorean theorem, which he did. But he was also a certified lunatic who uh, he had a, a religious cult, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, one, they all wore white was one of the things. And the strangest thing about the cult was that they were not allowed to touch beans. Mm -hmm. No, and that's not a metaphor. They were not allowed to touch pinto, kidney, lima, any type of beans. So, so uh, just one of the strangest men I encountered. What was the rationale for that? That it does not explain. And I, I actually went online to try to figure it out because I was so intrigued and and uh, I couldn't find the answer. Hit me with a few more of those. I've been, uh, I've been uh, confronting you with some <laughs> issues. Give me some stuff that you're sure I'm going to have trouble with. Oh, okay. Let's see. What have I got for you? Well, it's a, it's a problem. I mean, uh, well, what what was unusual about uh, Edgar Allan Poe's marriage? He married a very, very young girl who was, I think, a relative of his as That's well. That's it. See, you know everything. What? It's uh, yeah, his 13-year-old first cousin. There we so, go. Yeah. Uh, she was uh, the Jerry. He, he was the Jerry Lee Lewis of his day. Yes. <laughs> uh, what else can I hit you with? Um, well, uh, perhaps the. Uh, the Pueblo Indian divorce ritual? Is that in your store of knowledge? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, <laughs> if a, the woman w w did the act of divorcing, and she did it by uh, putting the man's sandals or moccasins out in front of uh, the residence, and that told him, don't, you're gone. Buster. That's it. Yeah. How did you know that? I read it in your book. Okay. <laughs> I got worried there for a second. I certainly didn't know that. You, you've gleaned some wonderful, many wonderful items from well, the evening. Thank you very much. Let's try some others. Uh, all right. Let's see. What else have I got? Well, um, how did the, uh, what, what did the uh, people of England use the zoo for during World War II? Well, they used the aquarium to, uh, to, uh, Take the fish out of their tanks and eat them. You are correct. Did sir. they eat other animals from the zoo? As no, well? they didn't. They didn't. So uh, just the fish. Yeah, but there the... are other instances throughout history of eating animals. Oh, people too. raiding zoos right. uh, under extremely uh, uh, stringent conditions. Sure. Exactly. I think exactly. something like that did happen at the Berlin Zoo during World War II. Oh, really? That Have was not that? in there. No, that was definitely. I think I've read that someplace. That's interesting. Uh, so let's see. What else can I hit you with? Uh, well, uh, here's one. What What is the secret loophole to get into Mensa, the Society of Geniuses? Uh, I truly don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I do remember that you tried to 
Did you apply to Mansour? I did. A part of the book is about my adventures and testing out my knowledge. And uh, so I wanted to get into Mensa. I took their uh, their notoriously yeah. difficult <laughs> Mensa quiz. And sad to report, I did not pass that. But I was smart enough to find a loophole, which is uh, that you can get in on your SAT scores. And the oh, really? uh, minimum requirement is 1250, mm -hmm. which has actually seemed low to me. You know, it's it's not... It's not uh, insignificant, but it doesn't seem genius level. And I had, you know, luckily gotten over 1250. So anyone who's over 1250, I encourage you, if you want to yeah. join Mensa. <clears throat> We're on the rim of a very important uh, abyss. Do you remember the name of the man who founded Mensa? <laughs> <laughs> that he I was don't. a British psychologist. I just, I'm blocking on his name. Who, uh, Sir something or other, who... Uh, was deeply interested in intelligence right. and did massive research about intelligence, supposedly demonstrating that um, intelligence is essentially genetically given. Oh, interesting. Uh, Not sure that's and, true, but... And he was very interested in cultivating intelligent people who were sort of God's gift to mankind. Thus right. he, among other things, organized and started Mensa. Oh, that's interesting. Only after his life, after he'd been dead for a number of years, was it discovered that he had faked most of his data? <laughs> he worked, you see, with um, with identical twins right. re reared apart, mm -hmm. and he found a vast number of identical twins reared apart, or merely in the British Isles, and demonstrated that they all tested at a, essentially the same level of intelligence, high or middle or low, uh, thus proving that it's a genetic uh, trait rather than one that right. is experientially uh, affected. Uh, but the data were all faked. That it, became a great, it was so much of a scandal that though he had been knighted for his work, they removed the knighthood after his death. Isn't that something? Well, I, I, I go into a little of the history of, uh, of intelligence theory mm -hmm. in the book, and uh, I, was, I was particularly interested in Sir Francis Galton, mm -hmm. who was a uh, cousin of Darwin. And uh, I mean, the, his, the, the, note, the uh, definition and concept of intelligence has just shifted so much. It's such a slippery thing. And uh, Galton believed that basically it was synonymous with your ability to perceive. So his intelligence, sort of the forerunner to the IQ tests, were uh, whether people could smell a rose bush, uh, how many, uh, how much weight they could lift. Uh, I mean, how much, uh, yeah, weight they could lift. It was just very bizarre uh, mm. ways to measure intelligence, and uh, and a lot of intelligence theories believe that uh, the IQ is also similarly flawed. Uh, who invented the IQ? Well, the, there's uh, Binet, the oh. French theorist, who is, uh, mm -hmm. who is, uh, you B know. It's Binet's work, it's Binet's concept, basically. Right. Take the mental age, which you get by um, by reaching a level which is average for people of a given chronological age. Thus, if a kid of uh, 10 uh, does the performance that would be average for people of 20, he has a mental age of 20. Right. But uh, the... Uh, but the denominator, uh, that's, uh, but but the lower, I never remember which is above and which is below the line, Num number, denominator and numerator. The denominator is below the line. That's right. Uh, so if you if you divide that 20 by 10, right. you get uh, a vast IQ. You get 200, <laughs> in fact. Well, I, uh, I did talk to an intelligence theorist who said that one study said that, uh, 
that if you take a sauna right before your IQ test, it uh -huh. will lift your IQ by six points. Wonderful. So maybe that's the secret. Uh, we are going to go on again after a quick round of messages, but it has occurred to me, it, somehow it's come back, those neurons did not completely die when it came <laughs> to the storage of the name of the man who founded Mensa. He was Sir Cyril Burt, B-U-R-T. That's terrific. I also have a little anecdote about the founder of the Boy Scouts, if you're, uh, I can tell it after the break. Yes, let's hear all about the founder of the Boy Scouts after these words. And we return to A.J. Jacobs, drawing from his really delightfully entertaining and very informative new book, The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World. That is, by the way, just published by Simon & Schuster and available wherever they sell real books. You were about to tell us who started the Boy Scouts. Yes, well, you told us who started Mensa, so I thought I would counter with Sir Robert Baden Powell, mm -hmm. who uh, founded the Boy Scouts. But what I found interesting is that he was also a noted, uh, he also pioneered the use of hot air balloons in spying, in military uh, reconnaissance. So uh, all these people, that was <laughs> one thing that struck me, is, is just the these historical figures who had such range uh it just made me so jealous because you know nowadays everyone's stuck in a very particular yeah. cubby hole but uh people like goethe he was a, a lawyer a poet a color theorist he uh he came up with irrigation schemes he designed military <laughs> uniforms he owned a theater i mean this guy had more more going on than and he was never wrong right <laughs> never wrong about anything <laughs> but he had um, an assistant his secretary his amanuensis was a man named eckermann hmm. you run across him he was not in there or if and he was he might have been in those 50 goethe times. wrote many memoirs and uh, eckermann lived on after Goethe's death and took on the major role of editing some of the private papers that had not yet been published, right. which were essentially memoiristic. And uh, in a famous footnote, uh, on one page, Goethe is talking about the loves of his life, and he says, uh, Lotti and Weimar was the deepest love of my life. Footnote in Eckermann, adds below, in this, Goethe is mistaken. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Says nothing more than that. <laughs> That's a great one. Well, speaking of people who, uh, you know, after the death, there was, uh, I was also struck by Kafka and uh, and his best friend, Max Broad, yeah. who was a fellow uh, writer in Prague. And, you know, Kafka published a couple of, of his short stories in obscure magazines, but uh but and when he died, he or right before he died, he told his best friend, Broad, you know, burn all of my manuscripts, mm -hmm. erase me from history. And so what did Broad do? He uh, he went and, and basically became Kafka's greatest publicist and publisher. And, uh, and without Max Broad, we would not have Kafka. Boy, that really makes you wonder about all the great works that were lost and lost early. Yeah. Uh, the most obvious case... And people have speculated about this for years. What if they hadn't burned the great library of Alexandria? Oh, it's true. Yeah, that would have been remarkable. When did that, that happen? <laughs> that happened uh, a long time ago. Yeah. Is it Caesar's doing? Uh, I think so, it's right? a consequence of a Roman army Absolutely. down there yeah. in Alexandria. Yeah, right. I, I do remember reading about the, the history of libraries, and I thought it was fascinating that... Uh, mm -hmm. 
that there was a, a great leap forward when they decided to put the spines of the book facing outward mm -hmm. before that they had them sort of haphazardly or facing inward. And it, it just makes you realize all of these these group things that we take for granted that were that were these huge innovations yeah. or like uh, you know the typewriter reading about the history of the typewriter and how the shift key was not the only system that they they had they had a dual keyboard system where one keyboard was lowercase and one keyboard was uppercase and they were really neck and neck for a while and uh, luckily the shift won out because i think it is more efficient but all of these things that we take for granted now let us go beyond facts, of, uh, that is mere facts, enjoyable facts, interesting facts, some of them trivial, some less than trivial, but essentially concretely focused. Let's go from that, which you find particularly in the section of the Encyclopedia Britannica known as the Micropedia, where the entries are shorter. Right. Let's go to the Macropedia. Yes. That's where you have the, the lengthy scholarly articles on important matters and integrating whole areas of knowledge. Uh, what did you... What sectors, what sections of the Macropedia really caught your interest? Well, yes, the Macropedia is like the extended version. They take, they take, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln or what, mm -hmm. and and write a longer thing on it. I mean, I did. Or love, history of England or something. Yeah, like that. they go on and on. I mean, the United States entry is yeah. is like a couple of hundred pages, and I did love uh, the history of the United States, and uh, you know, I am attracted to American history just because. I live here and I know it best. So, uh, uh, but uh, but as I was talking about Goethe, he was great. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, also the biographies. I mean, those those are the fascinating ones. You run across wonderful people you've never heard of. Absolutely, with fascinating lives, though we only get the briefest detail in some of those <laughs> micropedia entries. Yeah, the micropedia. I mean, uh, they had the uh, they. Even people you had heard of, but things that you just couldn't even imagine knowing As about. For like, example. well, we got Jeremy Bentham, who is a, a British philosopher. I'm sure you know because you're the fourth smartest man or third smartest. And I'm going to show you how smart I am. He's still sitting there at the London School of Economics. Exactly. You know all his of corpse that. is sitting in a chair. It's amazing. Yeah, it's he, been stuffed, of course. He 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 asked his friends to stuff his corpse and and yeah. in his finest uh, clothes. So he's uh, he's he's basically mummified. Well, oh, I not only know that I've seen it. Is that right? How uh, does he at, look at LSE? Oh, you know they will take visitors, particularly visitors who've got some business there. Uh, ordinarily, he's not he's not a regular display, but he's brought out <laughs> once a year for the meeting of the syndics or whatever they call themselves, the people who run the place. But uh, but slightly privileged visitors are sometimes taken in if they want to, right. to look to look at uh, uh, at Bentham. And how, and how did he look? Rather desiccated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not holding up so Didn't well. Didn't quite look human. You know. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was another, I mean, all these weird themes and leitmotifs yeah. in the encyclopedia and, and embalming was one of them i mean i learned that um, alexander the great was embalmed in honey his body was embalmed yeah. in honey to be shipped back to uh, greece and uh and lord nelson horatio nelson the great naval hero he was uh embalmed in brandy so uh lots of different ways to embalm people has, has it kept to this time <laughs> what's that do we find nelson still in a very very large Bottle of brandy <laughs> no, I think he's been dried out. They yeah. squeezed him dry. Actually, the origin of brandy is a little bit interesting because I have no idea what that is. Well, they, uh, according to legend, and uh, that a, a Dutch a captain of a ship mm -hmm. was uh, 
trying to bring wine, but he wanted to save space. So he sort of uh, dehydrated it, boiled it, and uh, and was left with this very concentrated uh, brandy. And and the sailors, you know, sailors, they, they get impatient. So they started dipping into this uh, concentrated wine and decided why add the water back in. And that's how brandy came to be. Truly. That's what it says. Stay with embalming for a moment. Yes. Um, the great persisting body, still embalmed, still visible to the public, is uh, Lenin in the Kremlin, isn't yes. it? Yes. And that was what interesting to me is, uh, you know, just thinking about the different jobs that people have. And uh, and that, I think, was probably the least appealing job to me in the encyclopedia, was the man who kept keeps up Lenin's corpse, because yeah. that is... There is a man whose job it is to do the upkeep. It requires additional chemical treatment and also very close regulation of the temperature. That's right. Yeah, yeah so uh, that's the one that you don't want to have. That leads us to the Soviet Union, and that leads us uh, to the neighboring state of uh, Germany, when it was Nazi Germany. Uh, the tyrannies of the 20th century right. are fascinating historical material. Absolutely, and and depressing, of course. I mean, one thing... One of the items I had for you on my little yes. uh, trivia uh, uh, thing was... Who was Baldur von Schirach? (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. I think that was in the, uh, yeah, some of the 50,000 brain cells I lost yesterday. Well, he was one of the guys on trial at Nuremberg, Mm. but one of the least known. He was the head of the Nazi youth movement. Oh, that's interesting. And he uh, got only a short term of 10 years rather than sentenced to hanging, as most of them were. Wow, that's interesting. Well, one thing that really struck me, it's on the 20th century, uh, tragedy, but a, a 19th century one. It's the Taiping Rebellion in mm-hmm. uh, in China. And, you know, uh, this one was the one that made me really feel ignorant because I'd heard of it very vaguely, but really had no idea. And this was going on exactly the same time as our Civil War. Yeah. Uh, but uh, our Civil War, we lost about six or 700,000 people. Uh, and in the Taiping Rebellion in China, 20 million people died. So it's just shocking. It had a religious basis, did it not? Yes, it was basically a a, a cult leader who, uh, you know, sort of a watered-down version of Christianity, and he believed himself to be the reincarnation Mm -hmm. of Christ. And like all good cult leaders, he had a huge harem. That sex among his millions of followers was was forbidden, but he himself had a a huge harem. And, uh, yeah, it was massive... uh, Massive uprising, many, many killed. One of the people who opposed him was uh, General So, mm-hmm. who is now known as a chicken entree at a Chinese restaurant. Oh, but, General H. Yeah, depending on how you transliterate it, is TSO yeah. or TSAO yeah. or HSO. But yeah, General So's chicken. I've had General So's chicken. I didn't know there was a name for him. Yes. Yeah. So he well, was I should a... have real. I should have seen the connection because, in fact, years ago I read a wonderful book about the Taiping Rebellion by Jonathan Spence. The Historian of China at Yale. Interesting. Who's done a major book on that? It was a popular book. He came and appeared on this radio program. Oh, look at those, I guess. Uh, yeah, I yeah. missed that book. But uh, yeah, fascinating. And the siege of Nanking and the you know two-year mm. siege. So, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, you get all these things that really make you realize uh, there there are some horrible times. What has the reading of the EB actually done to your life? Apart from the comic treatment that you give it in this wonderful book of yours, uh, The Know-It-All. But how has it, in fact, really altered the course of your life? Or well, has it? Uh, no, it certainly has. I mean, it, one thing that it's done is, uh, 
is that these facts are always bubbling up in my head. Uh-huh. So I always, it, in a sense, it's it's nice because I always have something to think about. Uh, you know, I'm never bored. I, uh, whatever, you know, I say I'm looking at a computer, I'll think of Augusta Lovelace, who was uh, the first, uh, considered the first computer programmer. And Lord a, Byron's daughter. You really are. True. <laughs> you truly just... do know it all. But yes, that's right, Lord Byron's daughter. Yeah, she was trying to popularize uh, Babbage's Right. What did he call it? The, uh, the uh, calculating machine or the... Um, the something engine. The uh, Oh, yeah, the differential engine. The di- yeah. Something like Which that. Which was, in principle, the same as the modern computer. Right. But it wasn't electronic, of course. No. And made of wood, right? I yeah. I believe so. But, uh, yeah. So I, so that's one thing. And, uh, and you know, as I said, my wife started fining me $1 for every irrelevant fact I inserted mm-hmm. into a conversation. So there was a little bit of that. Um but it's made me, uh, I'm happy I read it. Does this, in fact, increase or decrease your popularity at parties? <laughs> well, a little of both. I mean, people, I think they, uh, in the beginning, they're happy to see me, and then they start backing away slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to avoid being uh, an absolute bore with this stuff. You. That's right. Well, but, I, but one is tempted to, to display. That's right. Yeah, I've got so much in there that I I, uh, I have trouble keeping it in. It's very cathartic to say mm-hmm. it. And it's also good for the memory because the more you talk about it, the better you remember. So, uh, But sometimes, you know, I, ref- I, I forget. So I refresh my, myself by reading my own book, The Know-It-All. So I sometimes actually do go back and try to uh, study up. because it's Do you go notes. back to the encyclopedia itself? I do occasionally dip in. Why not? It's, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a it's nice to uh... show me how you work with it here is a volume of the encyclopedia britannica i brought it from home for this occasion uh just go through the pages and light upon something that interests you and fair uh, enough see if you may you make a discovery that you hadn't made before for that <laughs> that's true well i would uh i mean one when, when you're reading just if anyone ever wants to take up this uh this quest themselves i i recommend uh Laying it on your lap, mm-hmm. not trying to hold it up because it's quite heavy, and wearing loose clothing so that uh, <laughs> you can turn the pages easily. And uh, we've got, uh, let's see, how about... Uh, I've got two minutes left, so give me a discovery in the next two minutes. All right. Well, a discovery, mm-hmm. uh, Walnut Creek in Contra Costa County. Mm-hmm. As, uh, I used to drive by there when I lived in San Francisco. So... Always, it's a very Proustian experience to read the encyclopedia. It always like chewing that, on a madeleine. That's yeah. right. How about a wing chair? Like what about prob- a wing you chair? You probably know what it is, but it's. Uh, they first appeared in the late 17th century when the wings were sometimes known as cheeks. <laughs> so the wing chairs could have been called cheek chairs if mm-hmm. uh, if something had gone wrong. So uh, that's the kind of knowledge. Let's pluck one biographical item. Okay. How about um, Winnebago? The uh, this is a, uh, a, 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 a Native American tribe, uh, North American Indians, and uh, Yellow Thunder was uh, their chief. Mm-hmm. How's that? We have a picture of Yellow Thunder there, I think, do we? Yes, he's a, yeah. a good-looking man. I, I mean, you probably know about this, but one of my favorite Native American facts is uh, is uh, the counting of the counting coups, which is how they waged warfare, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the highest honor that you could do as a soldier would be to touch the enemy so it was almost like an elaborate game of Mm -hmm. tag so i believe that uh, if nothing else we should go back to that type of warfare and uh, we would be better off. well no i seek to shake your hand because if i touch you some of your knowledge will be conveyed to me (laughs) and right back at me and with that we draw to a close 
uh, in our conversation with A.J. Jacobs, uh, whose wonderful new book, The Know-It-All, is published by Simon & Schuster. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me.